Welcome to the Sale Street Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. And for more information about our church, visit salestreet.org. Lord, we thank you for all that you are. And even in the midst of our weaknesses, you are strong. Though even hell should endeavor to shake, you will never forsake us. God, I thank you for my brother Andrew as he comes to share the word, to continue this time of worship through teaching, open up our hearts, open up our ears to hear. Holy Spirit, move in our understanding. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We continue to praise you. Before we start, I just want to extend a formal uh, thanks to Justin and to Tim and to all the worship team just for getting everything set up in this room that you see. Uh, yeah. We got speakers, TVs, projection, all kinds of good stuff. So uh, welcome, everyone. We are going to be continuing our series in the book of Acts this morning. Uh, we'll be in the second half of Acts chapter 8, if you want to go ahead and turn there so we get ready. Uh, So over the last five months or so, as we've been studying this book, uh, the one verse that we have probably mentioned and read and talked about the most is Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And I'll read it just to remind you one more time, even though you're probably tired of hearing it by now. Acts 1, verse 8, but you will receive power... When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And this this has been one of the main themes that we've seen develop so far throughout the book of Acts, where the disciples have been in Jerusalem up until, as we just transitioned at the beginning of chapter 8, they have been in Jerusalem establishing the church that is now branching out to these further regions, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And this is a promise that Jesus made to to his people, to the church. But this promise was not new for the book of Acts. We're going to look briefly at a few verses from Isaiah chapter 56. Isaiah 56. And I'll read verses 6 to 8. It says, and the foreigners who joined themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, 
I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. So we see here in Isaiah, as well as numerous places throughout the scripture, this same theme that we see in Acts 1.8, that God promised to welcome all nations to his house. And in seeing the promise of Acts 1.8, we know that the people of God are united not by the same ethnicity, but through a common faith in Jesus. It says, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations, and I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. So this is the context that we need to read our passage in today, uh, Acts chapter 8, 26 to 40. As we've been discussing throughout the book of Acts, we live in the same age that the disciples lived in. We're in between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. We are part of the church. We are part of the body that Jesus made this same promise to, to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. And we'll return to Isaiah a little bit later in the passage. So Acts chapter 8, 26 to 40. If you're able and willing, I invite you to stand as we read God's word. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward, the, go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this, like a lamb he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, He told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Let's pray. Father, we ask you that you would just open our eyes uh, to the beauty of who you are in your word this morning, God. Uh, I ask that you would guide us by your spirit, and I ask that you would show us uh, the glory of Jesus in this passage. I pray for this church that you would continue to sculpt us 
to look more and more like you and like the body of people that you want us to be. God, help us to grow in knowledge and worship of you and help us to grow in our love and our devotion to one another and to the people that are around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So I gave you my outline for this passage. Uh, We're going to look at three main things from this passage. Uh, First, the Holy Spirit leads. The Holy Spirit leads. Second, the Holy Spirit prepares. The Holy Spirit prepares. And third, the Holy Spirit saves. The Holy Spirit saves. So first, the Holy Spirit leads. Uh, So this passage continues this transition that we began last week where the disciples have been cast out from Jerusalem. Now this came as a direct result of the persecution that they experienced from Saul. So the promise that Jesus made in Acts 1-8 for the gospel to spread to the ends of the earth is being realized with the disciples' dispersion. And it's quite ironic that what Saul and the Jewish leaders intended to stop the message through persecution is the very means that the message multiplies to the nations. In chapter 7, and so far in, chapters, uh, in chapter 8, Luke has focused on the ministry of two of the men that we saw, uh, that we saw in chapter 6. These were the, the men that were set apart to serve, where the Peter and John and the apostles were ministering to the word, these other men were set apart to serve the church and the physical needs. Uh, So first, we saw the ministry of Stephen. This led to his capture and to his execution. Next, as the persecution increased, Philip fled to Samaria, proclaiming the gospel along the way. As a result of this, many believed and were saved, and this led up to the dramatic confrontation that we saw with Simon the Magician last week. And this only brought more growth to the church in these further regions, Judea and Samaria. So here in 8.26, the story continues as the Spirit leads Philip from his current location into the desert. Philip is told to go south to Gaza, where the desert leads into Egypt. And this location that he is directed to is understood to have been the last stop that had water before going into a larger expanse of desert. So think about the faith of Philip here just for a minute. He's left Jerusalem, fleeing persecution, separated from the church, the larger body, commits to preaching the gospel as he goes, He's encountered some, or he's achieved some level of success. As we saw last week, he was working signs. Many came to believe, had this encounter with Simon the magician. Instinct would likely tell you to stay where you're at. Things were going okay. Continue the good work that you're doing, right? But the Spirit of God sends him away to the middle of the desert. He's not told why or for how long he's going to be there. He's just told to go. 
And as we continue, we see that the purpose, the intention that the Lord has for Philip is to preach the gospel to one man. The Holy Spirit leads. Next, we see that the Holy Spirit prepares. Look at verses 27 and 28. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. So as Philip follows the leading of the Holy Spirit, he comes upon an Ethiopian man who holds the title of eunuch. A eunuch would have been a type of court leader in ancient days, and this eunuch came from the royal party of Ethiopia. This isn't the same country that we know Ethiopia as today, but it would have been in the same region of Africa. The text tells us that this eunuch was in Jerusalem to worship. Now, commentators differ on whether the eunuch was a full, authentic convert to Judaism or a proselyte, as we've seen it described elsewhere in Acts, or if he was merely a man searching for God. I think it's possible that he's similar to Cornelius, who we'll see in the coming weeks in Acts chapter 10, who was described as a God-fearer. And I think we probably know people like this that at least verbally uh, believe in God, but their lives are not committed to him in one religion or another. I think either way, our second point is remarkably clear. The Holy Spirit worked in this man's life so that his heart was ready to receive the gospel whenever he encounters Philip. The Holy Spirit prepared. And I think there's a deeper level of understanding to be seen in this passage, in, this, uh, in verse 27 in particular, if we interpret it in light of the truth in the Old Testament that we started looking at in Isaiah 56, as well as the truth in Acts 1.8, that God is promised to give us the Spirit, to, to give the church the Spirit, and for the gospel to go out to the nations. Throughout the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was responsible for telling people about God, to tell the surrounding nations. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that they mostly failed at this task. But God keeps his promises despite the failings of his people. And in the days of the early church, following Jesus' resurrection, ethnic Israel had largely rejected Jesus. This happened in his life and in his death and also with the church after. But the mission continues, and the promise is still true, as here, an ethnic Greek, Philip, shares the gospel with an ethnic African, and the ripple effects of the gospel go forth. Let's look at the next three verses, 29 to 31. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. So the Holy Spirit continues to lead Philip and brings him to the chariot 
of this man, this eunuch. Philip overhears him reading from the book of Isaiah and asks if he understands it. The eunuch responds with a poignant question. How can I unless someone guides me? He then proceeds to invite Philip into his chariot, sensing that Philip may be able to direct him into a deeper understanding of who God is. And we like to commend Philip for his faith, as I mentioned earlier, no doubt about it. Uh, The man was driven by the power of the Holy Spirit and was faithful to respond. But I also like to joke a little bit here about how fortunate it was for Philip that this man happened to be reading one of the most important passages from the Old Testament as it relates to the Messiah. So if you're looking for a a baseball analogy, this is like a high fastball coming right down the middle, just ready to be knocked out of the park. Look at verse 32. Now the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this. Like a lamb, he was led to the slaughter. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? So this text that the eunuch reads from, if you're familiar, is Isaiah 53, which is commonly understood by Christians as one of the songs of suffering that foreshadowed the coming Messiah. Here, the suffering of the Messiah is described in terms of vivid detail as he willingly accepted undeserved punishment and death. We'll look at a few more verses from Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5 and 10. It says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. In verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. This is one of the most crucial texts that prophesied the earthly suffering of God's chosen one. And this ran directly counter to what the Jews anticipated in a Messiah. So due to this unexpected nature of suffering, the eunuch is right to ask Philip, who does the prophet write about? Now in Jewish circles, there would have been three possibilities. The prophet himself, Isaiah, could have been a metaphorical description for the nation of Israel, or he was talking about a servant or a chosen one of, the, of God, but not necessarily the Messiah because they were committed to this belief that the Messiah was not going to suffer. The Jews expected a king to come and free their people from earthly rulers and suffering. This is exactly what we saw with Jesus. But in a desire for a king, 
they neglected their biggest problem, sin. They did not realize that they needed a perfect Savior to sacrifice himself for the penalty of sin. Spoiler alert, if you haven't figured it out, Isaiah is prophesying about Jesus. Only in the person of Jesus do we see the suffering servant and the conquering king. He's, as Revelation describes, the lion like lamb and the lamb like lion. Let's look at Revelation 5. One of the elders, this is starting uh, Revelation 5, verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So in Revelation, we see the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, the slain servant, the lamb, is on the throne. And we see the conclusion of God's heart for the nations from Isaiah 56 to Acts 1.8, to Revelation 5, all nations bow before Christ on the throne. And this leads us to our final point, number three, the Holy Spirit saves. Look at verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with Scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. So a literal translation of this verse could read something like Philip gospeled Jesus. It doesn't make good English sense, but I think it makes good theology sense. And as my brother Lucas, who's not with us here this morning, told me, sometimes it just be like that. So he told the Philip told the eunuch the good news about Jesus. He pointed the eunuch to the one whom, whom Isaiah prophesied, to the Savior who was crucified for our sins, who was resurrected from the grave, and who now rules and reigns over us in his grace. And don't miss that Philip preached the gospel using the scriptures. He tells the story of Jesus from the promises made in the Old Testament, beginning with this passage, Isaiah 53. Now, this is extremely similar to an encounter that two disciples had with Jesus right after he was resurrected. Luke 24, verse 27. This is Jesus walking along the road with two of his disciples. It says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, 
he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So both Jesus in the Gospel of Luke and Philip in the book of Acts give us this blueprint for evangelism. We are not called to evangelize using gimmicks or five or ten or twelve step programs or even eloquent stories. We're called to tell the one story of Jesus from the entirety of Scripture. And what better motivation for us to dig into the Scriptures than to be able to share and be equipped to share the good news with a lost and longing world. I love this quote uh, from a man named Vaughn Roberts talking about the Bible. He says, The Bible obviously covers a great deal of ground, but there is one supreme subject that binds it all together. Jesus Christ and the salvation God offers through him. This is true not just of the Old Testament, of, of the New Testament, but of the Old as well. And he goes on to say, God has always had always planned to send Jesus. The whole Bible points to him from beginning to end. In the Old Testament, God points forward to him and promises his coming in the future. In the New Testament, God proclaims him to be the one who fulfills all those promises. And I can't help but wonder if another religious man would have encountered the eunuch on the road other than Philip. Think about it. What would a Muslim man have told the eunuch who so clearly longed for a relationship with God? He would have preached a false message that enough good works can make one right with God. What about a Buddhist? What would a Buddhist have said? Look inward at yourself and you can find true meaning and satisfaction. What about another quote-unquote Christian? Be baptized to be saved. Speak in tongues if you really want the Holy Spirit. Go to church for 30 years if you want God to love you. There are an endless number of possibilities, but thanks be to God that the eunuch encountered Philip on that road and heard the gospel. Philip rightly directed the eunuch away from himself to the crucified and risen Messiah, the only one that promises true redemption and satisfaction. Verse 36. And as they were going along the road, they come to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? So verse 36 seems to skip forward at least a little bit in time. We don't get the exact details of the conversation that Philip and the eunuch have, but we can safely assert that the eunuch believed upon Jesus. <clears throat> and they continue down the road and they see a body of water. Remember, this is what Gaza was known for as the last place with water before you go into the further expanse of desert. And make sure you see that the eunuch, not Philip, is the one who inquires about baptism. Philip may have told him about it, but Philip does not push him to make a decision or commit to being baptized. 
The eunuch is the one that asks, what prevents me from being baptized? And the answer, as he is a new believer in the risen Lord Jesus, his sin has been dealt with at the cross, the answer is nothing. Nothing prevents him from getting in that water and being baptized. The gospel is going forth according to the promise of Acts 1.8. And Christ is the Savior of men from all nations. Paul, who we'll see more about next week, makes this exact argument in Romans chapter 5. We'll pick it up in verse 18. Romans 5.18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen to that. Look at verse 38. It says, And he commanded the chariot to stop. They both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. So here, the eunuch is baptized by Philip in the water. The Lord is on the move from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, Now, one more level out to a black ethnic Gentile who heard the gospel and believed in Jesus only to return to his homeland to share in that message further. Verse 39, and when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. So as we approach the close of this passage, we see that the Spirit did not allow Philip to linger after the eunuch believes, and he's miraculously transported away. The eunuch then returns to his journey home, and he is rejoicing along the way. Now don't read too much into the precise meaning of why Philip didn't remain or what happened here with this Holy Spirit transportation. There's a lot of descriptive elements in the book of Acts that don't develop into further patterns. Uh, So we see something like this maybe once or twice, uh, but it it was not something that God is telling us you need to be doing doing this as a church. Now Sam told me before the service that he'd baptize everybody if the Holy Spirit started transporting them places, but I don't know. We'll see. We'll pray for that. But we trust in the Word. We trust in the Spirit's leadership. And we see that the Spirit has more work for Philip to do in our last verse, verse 40. It says, But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So Philip returns north to another region as he heads for this city, Caesarea, and he preaches the gospel along the way as he goes. Here's one uh, cool nugget that I found just from studying. Uh, Acts 21, verse 8 says, this is uh, going into the later years of Paul's ministry. Acts 21, 8, on the next day, we, enc- we departed and came to Caesarea, 
and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. So these events were occurring 20 years later after the event with Philip and the eunuch. And Philip is still in this city, likely still sharing the gospel, helping out the church, met Paul along the way, who was part of the reason why he fled in the first place, because of the persecution that Paul was doing against the Christians. So what is our response to this passage? I want to look at three takeaways, and these will line up with our three main things from the passage that we looked at. First, be ready. So the Holy Spirit leads, right? Led Philip where he was in Samaria, led Philip into the desert. We're reminded that the Holy Spirit continues to lead today. So we are called to be mindful of opportunities to preach the gospel. We should pray for God to give us the faith that Philip had, who left where he was to go into the middle of the desert to pursue one man. Now, these opportunities will look different for each one of us, obviously, uh, but the, the principle is the same. The Spirit leads, and we're called to share the truth of the gospel. So be ready. Second, remember. So in conjunction with the second point, the Holy Spirit prepares, we remember that the Spirit is at work, that the Spirit was at work in the eunuch's heart before he came to hear the gospel. So for anyone that we may encounter that is not a believer, uh, the Spirit could still be working in their lives to lead them to embrace the truth of the gospel. This is especially important in in light of Acts 1.8, that the gospel will go forth to the nations, to the ends of the earth, as there are many groups of people in the world today that have not yet embraced the gospel, many who may not have even heard. That was directly true with this eunuch who was from Ethiopia. This is the first convert from that nation. Heard the gospel, believed, and went home. So we are called to be ready for opportunities, but we should also remember that the the Spirit is at work in the lives of people, one, before they hear, but then also as they hear to change their hearts. And this leads us to our final point. The Holy Spirit saves, so we are called to rest. Because the Holy Spirit saves, We can rest knowing that the burden is not on us to convert sinners. And we can rest in the truth that our sins are dealt with at the cross. And this is ultimately the message of the gospel. And it's a message that we desperately need to hear in our society today. And just a personal testimony in my life, the last 12 months have been extremely weary and tolesome and hard, and I know I'm not the only one. I, I can't get, but I can't wrap myself around my own problems, let alone minister to others. But this is the reason why it's so critical that we remember the truth of the gospel and remind ourselves of them every day, that God is for us, that we can never be separated from his love, that we have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus reconciled to God our Father. We need to rest in that this morning. And I'll close with this from Matthew 10, 
you may be familiar, the, the disciples are going out on their first missionary-style journey. Jesus told them that they're going to be persecuted. He told them that they're going to suffer. He told them that they're going to receive resistance for the message that they're proclaiming. And in the middle of instructing them on how to handle themselves on this journey, Jesus says the following, Matthew 10, verse 30. But even the hairs of your head are numbered. Now, this may sound strange. This may not apply to all of us, depending on how much hair we have. But in the middle of instructing his disciples, telling them that they're going to suffer, he reminds his followers that the hairs on their head are numbered, that they are intimately known by their father, that they are cared for by a loving father. This is true for the disciples then. This is true for us today, that our lives are perfectly in his hands. And we can rest in that, knowing that he will equip us to share the gospel where we are now and to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. God, we just humble ourselves before you now at this time and thank you for the truth of your message, the gospel that you have sacrificed yourself on behalf of people that did not deserve it. We praise your name for all of your goodness and for all of your glory, for your mercy and for your grace, God. Open our eyes to see this, to believe, to trust, to worship you. Help us to cast off our sins or anything that may be prohibiting us from experiencing true relationship with you. Thank you for this church, and I thank you for the opportunity to just talk about how good you are. As we worship now in this moment, God, just open our eyes to see, to believe. And may all that we do be honoring to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.